right, everybody, welcome back to the Power of Song podcast. This episode has been a long time coming. I've been uh, a little bit distracted with many, many other projects over the last season or two, and it's been a long time since I uh, put out a podcast, but I'm really excited to be finally getting to this point where I can put this out. Today's guest is probably my biggest songwriting hero for the last bunch of years, probably four years or five years ago, I discovered, rediscovered his music. Uh, we came up through the Boston scene, the Northeast jam scene in the 90s, connected in a bunch of ways over the years, but kind of drifted apart and I lost track of him through his kind of middle period, I guess you could say. But in the last decade or so, he has really come into his own as a songwriter. What else can I say? I'm a giant fan of his songs. I think he's really onto something timeless, powerful. You know, he's really pushing traditional song craft forward in some really remarkable ways. So this is going to be part one. I'm going to go ahead and say we're, we're going to do another one. We've agreed to, to have another interview to finish. Uh, we were really getting into the thick of the songwriting when his, his young son came in. and uh, So it ends abruptly, but uh, you know we will be doing another deep dive, as you could call it, and hopefully we'll just be able to pick up where we left off. But for now, Here's Brad Barr and myself in a conversation about his music and uh, so much more to cover. But for now, I hope this helps give you some background on on the man and the music. And if you can catch them on tour, they're going to be doing a handful of dates uh, this winter, heading out to Europe a couple of times. The new record that just came out, Queens of the Breakers, I've probably averaged about twice a day (laughs) going all the way through it. Uh, it's excellent, and it's new, it's different, and it's excellent. So here you have it, Brad Barr on The Power of Song. Thanks for tuning in. So Nate, Nate Salas, which is good to, good to finally get you on my uh, podcast here. <laughs> uh, I've been What's trying it called for a long again? Time. Power of Nate Salas, which <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I, uh, I'm happy to be on your podcast, and... Uh, I'm glad I could make time for you. I'm just actually taking off my shirt here. Oh, sweet. I'll do the, I'll do the same. I've been running back and forth. I went home to my house to grab uh, the LPs that you so graciously signed and, and Andrew uh, for me because I wanted to be able to reference some song lyrics because I'm really interested in the lyrics. So, yeah, and then I ran back and I'm just, yeah, I'm wicked hot, as we say in the Northeast. That's funny. It's true. It's, it hasn't really been wicked hot in Montreal all summer. Yeah, we're just talking about that. Like normally by July, we've been swimming like several times and just trying to get every chance get out of the city. But it's been like kind of rainy and cold. Not that I want to talk about the weather uh, with, with our precious time. <laughs> What's your gig tonight? Ah, well, my gig tonight is playing uh, a band called the Schleem Team. Have you ever heard of Schleem? Like Schleem. The Schleem is then repurposed for later batches. They take the dingle bop and they push it through the grumbo where the fleeb is rubbed Anyway, when it. I first heard the name of this band, and I'm just sitting in kind of as a guest, I, I thought, what a horrible name. But apparently there's a there's some meaning behind it, and I haven't quite uh, grasped it yet, but I'm, I'm going with it because it's not really my I'll choice Google anyway. It. Yeah. <laughs> I'll Google it. I'll, I'll Schleem I'll it yeah. later. So it's it's cool. uh, it's like a funk, jazz funk kind of thing. Uh, Grant Green and uh, Jimmy Smith and John Schofield and Medeski Martin and Wood covers and you know things like that. Beautiful. Yep, that was uh, that's what I wanted to be. 
for yeah. years. Tried for years to be as graceful as those guys, but it's uh, yeah, they make it sound easy. That's all. Yeah, yeah. They make easy sound easy. <laughs> so, just for a little background, um, I've known you since what the mid, early mid '90s when you were coming up with the slip. I was playing with a band called the Silas Shepherd Trio. Yeah. And uh, we would play the same stages, and often I think maybe I opened for you once, or I can remember hearing you singing the Middle East. Yeah, well, I was thinking Harper's Ferry, uh, Harper's but Ferry. yeah, definitely. You guys are a trio East. too. Yep, right? exactly. Yeah. And I remember walking into Harper's Ferry one day, and you were singing in the corner. <laughs> Do you remember the next one? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I saw you and Rudy. You look very high. Yeah. So that's how far back we go to the days when Brad was singing Donald Fagan Steely Dan covers. I still do. I still oh, do really? on my piano in my spare time. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. What's your favorite tune to sing of his? Or what do you like? Um, boy, I picture you singing really Asia. Uh, yeah, I, I do I do try and get through Asia. It's a tricky one. I mean, those, those songs are just so good for like my personal ear training. Whatever you mm-hmm. think about Steely Dan, I know most people have a, an aversion our bandmate Sarah Page, I think that's her least favorite band yeah. in the world. Yeah, she um, probably secretly loves them. Mm, I don't think so. I, <laughs> I think, but I think it, I think her mom loved them. So it's right. like got to It goes deep. Uh, I see. Yeah, her, deep yeah, her resentment. Personal yeah. I took Steely Dan chronologically. That was the only way I was able to like kind of get into their repertoire. Was sure. starting with uh, "Can't Buy a Thrill," mm-hmm. "Countdown to Ecstasy." Dirty work. I forget what's next. Uh, yeah, Katie lied. Uh, yeah. That's how that music unfolded to me. Because I tried to jump from Can't Buy a Thrill right to Asia, which for some reason my dad had in his record collection. He had maybe one of the worst record collections, bless his heart. He had okay taste in music, but his record collection was pretty slim. But for some reason he had Asia, and uh, I tried to, when I realized I liked Can't Buy a Thrill, I tried to jump right to Asia, and I was like, nope. That's yeah. oh, that's too much. It's too much schmaltz. Yeah, yeah. When I heard Deacon Blues, I was like, I, I, I I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. Well, now then, then after like going through the catalog, when I got to Asia, I was like, ah, right. I've arrived. It was like, yeah. it was like I had to go through the steps or something. Well, you got to drink gin before you drink whiskey. Maybe I don't know. I guess so. Although I, I did go straight to whiskey. Never could do the gin. <laughs> Good analogy, though. Well, I was starting to say, you know, just just to kind of back up a little bit, you know, we go way back. I started to play in a band in '98 called John Brown's Body. Oh yeah. And uh, we, I've kind of been on this kind of parallel path uh, with you. You know, we've crossed paths infrequently, but over time, several times. And uh, I just wanted to point out that when I saw you and Andrew and um, as the Slip, um, for some reason, your bass player uh, at the time is. Oh, Mark. Mark. Mark, Mark Friedman. Yeah, I saw you guys playing in Geneva once. We were coming to play at a frat party, and you were playing at a, at a frat on a lawn. Uh, and you guys were doing, like, really straight-ahead jazz. It sounded like, ah, I remember being really floored. And, you know, this is coming from a guy who I had just finished, you know, Berklee College of Music, jazz program, and, you know, I'd been trying to play that stuff, you know, Pat Metheny and stuff hours and hours in the shed trying to learn how to how to play like that and you guys were just ripping it up on on this you know straight ahead jazz style it was i was very impressed and from then on i was like okay it's not uh, steely dan covers because i hadn't really checked out the slip and then after that 
I realized that you were not joking around as players. Then a couple years later, we crossed paths at High Sierra, just kind of both of us walking around with a guitar. And next thing, it was like sunrise. (laughs) Yep. I remember that. Yeah. And and John Brown's body, you guys were a a super force. I mean, like, I know we, we played together several times you guys opening for us us opening for you festivals is like there was a a cool camaraderie there and but you guys always laid down the i don't know i think maybe you were one of the first bands that ever see do like a real authentic roots reggae dub style just the reductive like really simple breaking it down to just Mm -hmm. bass and drums you know bringing in all the and you were playing on the organ and the guitar too yeah bouncing around yeah, uh, that was, those were fun days, the early days. Well, I just listened to your podcast uh, interview with Ezra Lip, uh, and he shouted me out at the end of it. It was great. I, was, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ezra. And he mentioned he doesn't know if I'm still in that band or anything, and I'm not, uh, but I still play on the records. I played on uh, the Kings and Queens record. I contributed to uh, the mixing for uh, their dub record that came off of that, and uh, I'm lucky enough to have gotten the call uh, their keyboard player is actually expecting a baby in the end of July so I'm, I'm going to be kind of on deck playing rhythm guitar and if he has to split I step over and play the keys and I'll be in my old on my old role Just still Elliot and Kevin? Uh, Kevin split the band shortly after I did there's two original guys, Elliot and Tommy. I'm sure you remember Tommy. Oh, Tommy. Oh man, Tommy Benedetti. Yeah. What if he was the He's the rock <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm glad I get to I get to play with them this summer a bit and uh, getting out with Ten Foot Ganja Plan a little bit this summer. I'm I'm really I'm really having a good summer so far. Is that um, Craig's? Yes. No. Yes. Yeah. So going back mixed, to the swamp. Uh, he tracked and mixed some foot stuff because he lived in that house. Right. This is, we, we call it the swamp. Yeah. That, yeah, that was. Brookline I think or, we uh, we may have like yeah we moved into that house before there was a swamp in it. There was I no see. our. our yeah, for anyone listening uh, who does not know what we're talking about, this might be boring. We're just catching up. <laughs> but the uh, yeah, that house at the end of Beaconwood Road in Newton. That's right. Newton. We lived in we lived in that house and it and it was sinking. Like we made a our friend of mine, Adam Mutterpro, made a movie about how the house was sinking and jars rolling around the floors, and it was indeed sinking. And the landlord was super sketchy. He just yeah, very evasive and and aggressive. That when he when he wanted to be, and then I went. We moved out. I think we only lived there for a year, and we moved out. And a few years later, went back to record with Craig, who had yeah. moved in and set up the studio. And yeah, there was a, a swamp in the back that yeah. had not been there before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we fondly remember that studio. It uh, yeah, he had to pull out of there though. So you've been you've been getting out, even getting out yourself and playing. Yeah, I'm, I'm having fun. My kids, you know, you'll you'll see. There's probably uh, you're you're son is three i gather yeah okay and that's the one so far yep the one, only one for me but uh andrew just had a baby okay uh who's four months old now okay. named so, otis okay so next it's going to be the bar cousins hopefully the yeah next that's iteration. what we're <laughs> yeah and we just bought a house together here in montreal up nice. in a sort of colorful uh diverse neighborhood called Park Extension which is like full of uh, Indian restaurants and African markets and uh, we got a little bar compound going now by Mont Royal 
It's um, <clears throat> a little north. We've been living kind of more or less at the foot of the mountain in, okay. in Mile End, and uh, and we're moving just about a kilometer. If anyone out there knows what a kilometer is, uh, <laughs> I know it took me a long time being American to figure out what a kilometer was exactly and what uh, 20 degrees Celsius was, but uh, I'm starting to get the hang of it. Yeah. So yeah, we're uh, we're moving. Actually, we're renovating the house right now. So I'm uh, spending my time between finishing a record and renovating a house. Yes. So when are you moving out? Um, August first, technically. I figured I might catch a little um, Canadian out, but I, I haven't heard you do it yet. I, I heard you say I was gonna. <laughs> I was gonna point it out, but I I, I let it slide. <laughs> I let it slide because I was I was like maybe. It's, trying to make me feel comfortable <laughs> <laughs> that was that was slick that was yeah, slick Nate yeah all right let's get down to brass tacks here so I just want to go kind of to the beginning uh, I know that you in your bio uh, a few bios I've seen you mentioned the boxing gloves oh yeah and I just kind of want you to tell a brief version of that story because I think it'll give folks who maybe aren't familiar with you a sense of how you got started and, and what the bond between you and Andrew is. And then just, if you could just tell a little bit about like your earliest musical memories, maybe something about when you knew that music was your path. And uh, I'd also like to just kind of pepper in here. Uh, one of the things that I'd, I like to do with this podcast is to kind of empower people. So I may ask you a few questions that are kind of looking for you to share things about like maybe self-doubt or times when you have felt like, you know, you're not good enough because I hold you all, in such all the time. <laughs> I hold you in such high regard. I I just think of you as someone who has achieved just such a high level of of artistry with your music and if someone like you is is doubting yourself, it just makes me feel better about, you know, those times in my life, you know, when I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough, you know, kind of thing. But anyway, back up, to the, back up to the box and gloves and, uh, and just take it from there wherever you like to go. Okay. Well, before I do, thank you. That's a really nice thing to say. And, and I, I appreciate not just that you feel that way, but that you're able to say it so gracefully. That's, uh, that's very, very nice to hear. And, uh, and now, the first thing I think of with those boxing gloves and the earliest musical memories, and it kind of is a consistent theme throughout my life, is basements. And I feel like I've spent a lot of time, as most of us who are musicians... Jamming in the basement. Yeah, jamming in basements. And for us, our basement in our house in Providence, Rhode Island, was kind of Andrew and, and my um, anything-goes space. like. Mm -hmm. The folks didn't really mind, you know, they didn't check in on us a lot down in the basement. They figured, well, we went down in the basement, there wasn't a lot we could break, that, you know, it was kind of messy already. Mm -hmm. So the basement is where we did a lot of weird experiments with turpentine and had some pets down there. We had rabbits and guinea pigs. Did not do experiments on those guys. Oh. We, were, we were animal lovers. But we also set up a, yeah, we set up a mini boxing ring down there that was i don't know ropes and everything yep little ropes we were big wwf fans uh -huh. like uh jimmy superfly we and all that yeah exactly could you Those climb days. on the ropes and like jump from no them? Oh, okay they were kind of slack 
<clears throat> that was very makeshift. I think it was like a mattress with some string around it. But uh, yeah, we went to see a lot of. Saw Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, Rowdy Roddy Piper. The, oh, at the Civic Center, right? The Providence Civic Center. Well, my my dad, being a dentist, he had patients in all areas of life and occupations and one of them was like a security guard at the civic center so he would get my dad pretty much front row tickets to any time the wwf came wow. or a lot of our, my first concerts were were in the same from the same sort of good fortune acdc and uh-huh. ario speedwagon oh, wow. um Tom Petty. I, I saw a lot of these guys. Thanks You're leaving to, out, uh, you know, Cinderella and Tesla and Def Motley Leppard. Crew. <laughs> Motley Crue. I, what about yeah, them? Didn't yep. you see all those? I did, actually. Uh, uh, yep, Motley I... Crue. Uh, <laughs> Cinderella, L.A. Guns. Uh, I'm forgetting a there couple. Skid Row. Oh, yeah. Skid Row. So, so back to the boxing. Yeah, we set up our little boxing ring and we were just, you know, couple of kids a lot of pent-up energy and that sort of found the crap out of each other yeah with some rules you know like you you couldn't i guess it was kind of a bit civil it was Uh you know upstairs if he did something we i didn't like or you know we kind of fight maliciously upstairs but like down in the basement with the boxing gloves there was a a civility imposed on the whole thing i don't know maybe that basement came to kind of represent that like okay it was equal ground because that's where we first started playing music uh together and my first musical memory musical instruments in our house aside from like the piano that i was taking piano lessons on was christmas morning they bought a drum set and a guitar uh for us and went downstairs this is age 10 and 8 or something yeah, that's probably about right. And Andrew bolted right for the drums. He didn't even think twice. He just ran at the yeah. drums and started pounding on them for like five minutes, just going off. And uh, finally, my parents were like, oh, the tag says that these are for Brad. Oh, but this guitar is for you, Andrew. <laughs> and uh, he just kind of accepted it. Like Santa, this is from Santa, so Santa must, Santa must know what he's doing. Yeah. I never really took to the drums, but he did start taking some guitar lessons, and it was just pitiful. I remember watching his recital, and they were just trying to do like a 12-bar blues or something. This was like a bunch of eight-year-olds. Yeah, by this point, probably seven or eight years old. And uh, I was like, oh, man, he's terrible. (laughs) And I think right around then, it was like, okay, I'll play the guitar, you play the drums. And it was like, ah, that's the way it's supposed to be, okay. Clearly, that was faded. Yeah, it just made sense even to our young minds. We're like, okay, that, that feels right. And funny enough, down in that basement, we had a couple neighborhood friends who would come over and play some music with us. And one of them was a guy named Charlie Hall, who we've stayed in touch with all these years, and he's been the drummer in the War on Drugs for the oh. last maybe four or five, since that record came out, uh, Lost in the Dream. You guys were playing with them for a little bit, yeah? Yeah, that was thanks to that connection uh, with Charlie, because he was the first guy who I ever sat in front of while they played the drums and was like, oh, that's how you do it. Mm. There's a pattern that repeats and a boom, cha, boom. You like had no, the cross-sticking hi-hat. Yeah, you don't just be unload. like... like <laughs> it's different than boxing. <laughs> yeah, it's different than boxing. It's, it's animal from the Muppets. He's, you know, he has his own thing, but that's animal. Like Charlie was showing us the power of, uh, of playing a beat, and that was 
I think he was the guy who showed Andrew how to how to play a backbeat. Probably, yeah, we were probably about nine nine years old. I then switched to the bass. I wanted to play bass. I was kind of just fascinated by it. I didn't understand what the heck was going on with these giant strings and the low sound. And so I convinced them to buy me a bass and something like a sixty dollar bass from the Tippo's Music Store nice. in Providence. And uh, kind of up and running from there. Okay. So did you ever consider other careers? Did you go to college? What was the progression into being like a dedicated jammer? I never actually considered any other profession. I think from the first time I got paid to play music, which I think I was probably 13, and Andrew was probably 11, and we got paid to play a couple of kids' birthday parties. And then someone booked us at a place called, like, I honestly think it was called the Blue Pelican in Newport, which Isn't I think that was from the, name the Police of the, Academy movie? The Police Academy. <laughs> it was the name of the gay bar in the Police Academy, yeah. which is why I think it's funny. But it was called the Blue Pelican. And it was actually like a club. We played like a club at 14. Those, like, handful of gigs right there, I think, just sort of made me believe, like, oh can do this. And how did you get so proficient? Were you self-taught? Did you study under teachers? How did you do it? Well, it it kind of, it was really jump-started during high school, around the age of 16. The first incarnation of the slip came together, and it was myself on guitar, another guitar player, John Myers, Adam Mutterpearl, who made the movies about the sinking house, and my brother. And that band... We went to boarding school by my own free will because I, I knew at that time that I wanted a good music program. We could play music every single night from like eight to ten or something like that. Mm-hmm. We was like you were done with your like study time, go play music. Uh, I know it sounds very upper middle class and and shishi, but it was actually a pretty down to earth place. A lot of good good people, a lot of great friends, and still friends with nice. solid people. Art artists, really artistic school. Um, but we would play every night for like two hours. And that doesn't really like push the thing into gear because it was about playing with other people and your rhythm gets really good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the first big piece of the puzzle is, is when your rhythm comes together. You can have all the notes and all the harmonies in the world and it'd be fascinating and colorful, but rhythm... It's the most basic element of music. Yeah. Playing guitar, especially, it's tricky. You know, you got two things that have to line up. You know, your left hand and your right hand. They have to synchronize, and it gets tricky. And just that much playing every single day with a band is, is kind of what secured it for me. And from there, I did go to college, but just for one year. And it was just kind of to read a lot of books, actually, mm-hmm. and to get out into nature. It was um, in Colorado. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a cultural dead zone in Colorado Springs mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. me at the time. I don't know what it's like now, and maybe it's blossoming, but um, I knew it was going to be music, and I knew I had to get back with Andrew. Even just one year apart, I was like, yeah. we're not making any progress here. i got to get back and keep working on this thing. Nice. And that's when we went to Berkeley, which was super good for us, just being in that kind of institution. Oh, you enrolled in Berkeley. Yeah, I went to I Berkeley for a, a year and a half. Okay. Yep. A lot of nuts and bolts fall in place there. Yeah. I don't know if it was something my mom instilled in me. It's funny. I talked about this with Ezra, too. The discipline factor, I, I always recognize that if you could learn the sort of traditional way to do things, the way that the 
the masters that came before you, people that digest all this stuff. So you can understand and, and, and maybe, you know, sort of imitate or and assimilate that thing. That's how you're not going to repeat history, you know? That's how you're not going to fumble through. It's like, okay, I know, I understand. I know this. This, is, this has been done before, what I'm trying to do. How can I adapt? How can I make it my own thing? Yeah. So I've always kind of thought, learn the rules, digest them, and then then you break them. Yeah. So in music and with guitar, I could see that. I can see how that happens. With songwriting and lyric writing, that's got to be a, a, a bit more tricky or something. Have you been through phases where you were writing, like, say, I'm going to write a song that's like Blowing in the Wind or, you know, some classics mm. where you kind of model a song after that? Or how did your lyric writing develop? Well, yeah, that's a really good observation and probably why I've always considered in the previous decades, I had always considered myself more of a guitar player, instrumentalist than a songwriter because I, aside from a listening and digging all these songs, I never really had the discipline as a songwriter, as a literary, a consumer of literature. And it felt like it was enough to just learn how to play the guitar the way I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I I didn't spend that much time like learning about songwriting and poetry and prose. It was, I thought I did enough, enough work to get to a certain place, but I feel like I was kind of a late bloomer mm-hmm. as a songwriter. I could see that. Yeah, the slip was more of a jam band. Um, but yeah. Clearly, towards the end, you were aiming for more of a crafted song type of an approach. That, I, I have my friend Nathan Moore to thank for that. I, I, I Nathan is the guy who, like, made me sit down and, and shut up, really. Was, I mean, you listen to any the slip songs from our first three, four records, I mean, just... Terrible songwriting, like things that made no sense. Well, yeah, I mean, that was a trend in those days. It was like so many of us were writing songs that were, you know, the lyrics were supposed to be absurd and silly, and, you know, it was enough to just sing about a frog that was walking down the street, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Which, of course, Nathan Moore would write a beautiful song about a frog that's walking down the street. (laughs) He sure would. He probably, I think he did. I think he did, actually. (laughs) Yeah. He was the guy, and I think it was. It really just took one or two times of seeing Nathan perform by himself, because he had he had the amusement. I came across the amusement, and in, uh, in Boulder, actually, we were in Boulder, and and somebody said, "You got to go check out this band that's playing right next door." And we went over, and I got my mind blown by them. Yeah, I, I remember being like really intrigued by them, not totally getting it, but being intrigued, and, and enough that I talked to Nathan afterwards, and we. He started talking and like he like invited him. I'm like I'm going out to visit my. He's like, what are you up to after the festival? I'm going out to visit my mom, uh, you know, in Rhode Island. He's like, can I come? <laughs> <laughs> this is like maybe '99 or 2000. I was like, sure, yeah, you can come. He's like, can you know, Amy and and my dog too. So like Nathan and and Amy, who put was the bass player in yeah, the band, Amy and their Curl. dog, Amy Curl, all came out visit my mom with me and I showed up with these strangers with <laughs> guitar and, and that's where Nathan and he just would he just sit across from me and play me his songs and yeah I was just kind of had my jaw dropped although I was trying to trying to look you know probably trying to look unimpressed or, or at least trying to you know pretend I wasn't like getting my soul torn out and right. my whole identity you know crashing before me what song comes to mind when you think of that day what what which one of his songs do you think he was singing at that moment? Oh, 
probably probably nowhere from here to go. Mm-hmm. That was the one that like just slayed me all the time. Like yeah. I, I tried to cover it a bunch, but I would cry in the middle of singing oh, that song. Nice. I, I stopped. I stopped doing it because like this is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like literally making choked up sounds in the microphone. Yeah. Um, People love that. <laughs> Nathan, yeah, he he really helped me like you know step back and kind of like you're saying about like. The, the discipline approaching it like a craft yeah okay are you getting to the heart of something right. here and economy economy uh playfulness um mm-hmm. and i still feel extremely challenged by that that art form uh, just the song writing the song it's it's something that probably you know writing music writing something that's really fun to play that i can riff on and play with other guys that comes are so easy sure. writing the the song is thankfully always really challenging because you know i'm always surprised when one pops out and and kind of thrilled when i'm when i've got a new thing to riff on yeah obviously i've already used lots of superlatives to describe you but obviously you you've arrived as a songwriter i mean i'm looking at your lps here with the lyrics in front of me and it's like i'm looking at a song like cloud oh yeah I made myself into a cloud. You've got a form, and you're sticking to the form. Everything is in its place, and yet there's not a single filler word or filler syllable. And when you're finished with the song, you've covered, you know, each verse has a different kind of focus, and then towards the end, you tie it all together. It's truly a beautiful craft. I mean, it's like I'm looking at a, um, you know, a nice piece of furniture or something that someone spent months on. Well, do you do you work really hard on a song like that, or did it just pour out of you? Or, or do you edit many times? Has it Did it evolve? How, how did that song in particular come out? That one's one of those rare tunes that I didn't sort of slave over, didn't have to, like, grind too hard. I remember, I think it was, like, maybe 2006 seven or eight still a single guy here in montreal and just coming home drunk one night laying down on the bed nearly passed out and just started playing that song and i think i wrote the first verse before i passed out and woke up the next day and and it was still hanging on there that's kind of my litmus if i if the song if it sticks around you know for like a day a week a month even a year I've got some that are still kind of hanging around I'll, I'll finish writing them but most songs are not like that for me that was a really quick one a lot of the good ones are I mean it's just kind of a, a known characteristic you know if, if minute you have to really think about it you know you're I won't say compromised but right. you've suddenly got some obstacles once your brain gets right. too involved that was one I remember that song the song called uh, If One of Us Should Fall it was a slip song that song was a similar thing kind of like don't really remember writing it certainly don't remember thinking about writing it it just seemed to kind of appear mm. and I know that sounds a little bit cliche or dainty but it, it it's happened rarely enough in my life that I can kind of acknowledge when there aren't too many songs where I can say that mm. was the case and, and Cloud that was case with that one it just uh, fell out very easily and we dedicated it to our friend Lassa although I believe I'd written it recorded it and then she passed away and it was like oh this must this must yeah. be for her wow um, 
<clears throat> so yeah, that 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 one around that time and that song right it was kind of you know soon after moving to Montreal. That period was what I feel like I started to feel way more confident in my songwriting. Mm. Like I'd sort of flailed and sprawled and had some hits for me, yeah. personal like hits and misses. And that's when I felt like, okay, I used to can smell a good song and yeah. think and you know think I know how to follow it where it's going. Yeah. So what's out of the first record, the first Bar Brothers record, did any of that material come from before Montreal? Was Did any of it appear in the slip days? Or somehow I picture you guys singing like Old Mythologies or Ubel or did any of those songs go back that far? Ubel did. Yep, the slip played Ubel, I'm pretty sure. And this, because there was a little bit of a great time when uh, we'd moved to Montreal, 2005. And I started writing a lot of those tunes that made it on the first Bar Brothers record. The Slip was finishing Eisenhower. And yeah, some of those songs did cross over. I know Ubel, maybe um, Let There Be Horses. Mm-hmm. I think we'd try that in The Slip. Oh, uh, Give the Devil Back His Heart. Actually, The Slip recorded that in Brooklyn. Yeah, it was kind of a, a little time there when I had The Slip. The Bar Brothers and Surprise Mr. Davis and kind of all three oh, no, were occupying burners and I remember saying which I feel like they can't all keep going or may, if they mm. can at least one of them's kind of got to get some attention right now because as it is they're all just sort of there's not a lot of no impact happening um, I've seen songwriters do a thing where they have different bands like for instance Elliot Martin uh, John Brown's Body we have a side project called Black Castle and he kind of well he hasn't been writing for Black Castle in quite some time because I think he's really just focusing on John Brown's Body but for a while it was kind of like he'd write a song and which way is it going to go I'm, I'm kind of hoping you're going to say that you know it was a it was a impetus to write because you had all these groups and so you had to kind of crank out about as many songs as you could you know to keep everyone happy i guess surprise well, mr davis was you know you weren't pressured to write so much because nathan was you know involved in that yeah although i did occasionally one would pop out and i kind of know right away okay that's a that's a davis tune yeah. boy it's kind of hard to remember and i and it maybe wasn't so clear just because like you we were just talking about, uh, we did play several of the Bar Brothers tunes with the slip. I don't think we ever tried them in Surprising Mr. Davis, but there was... Oh, my son Eli just came... Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Hey, Eli. I don't care. Yeah. Hey, Nate, you want to get Eli real quick? Yeah. What's up, Eli? It's raining, yeah. Okay. <laughs> go ahead. Go inside. I'll... Sorry about that. Three years old, huh? Three years old. I'm so glad he came back because I had I had started to say at the beginning, you'll see, because <laughs> my kids are now uh, 13 and nine. And what? Yeah, ah, and I I'm I just they were younger. I started to to say that because you know now I'm able to take the random gig like on a Thursday night at the local bar where we're just playing covers. For so many years, it was it was you know I had to say no 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 to every gig that came my way you know and just focus on my something that something that your wife or girlfriend was like okay that one that one makes money and that looks like a career kind of gig yeah kind of I mean yeah. it wasn't so much of a directive but definitely I had to be way more discerning or you know just I couldn't I couldn't play as much and now that they're getting a little older 
man, it's it's nice. And I guess the purpose of me bringing it up was like, hey, don't worry. Like, I know you, you feel like you're juggling 10 chainsaws, or <laughs> flaming chainsaws right now. But <laughs> as they hit the teen years, they start to be able to, like, get to and from their places on their own. And, you know, they don't need you to sit there and fall asleep with them every night. <laughs> it's quite liberating, actually. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it has its challenges in a different way. But yeah, I can relate to that. Like, I don't take as many gigs. I hardly take any gigs. And if I do have to take a gig, like, God forbid, out of town with a friend who invited me and I'm not getting paid too much or it's just kind of for fun, which... I think is important. I'm, I make a case for it and just in the general happiness right. doing what you love sense. But um, yeah, I have to be a bit more discerning or not do it or be prepared to, uh, you know... Do the extra day of... Uh, yeah, rebuild my credit. Yeah. <laughs> but l- luckily she's very um, forgiving or not so demanding in that regard. She knows this is what I do. Yeah, yeah. That's a good what partnership. What are we talking about? Oh geez, everything. Uh, song, oh, songs. I was going to start over. throwing, throwing yeah. some of your songs out at you, like just to see like what the process was for some of those other ones. And you know, a song yeah. like Ubel, uh, and you know, I think your your second Bar Brothers album is in some ways even better. Uh, but here we're just focusing on the first one. By the glaze in your eye, by the shape, by your size, by the pen in your heart, by the art in your room, by your bicycle. By the hole in your shoe, by New York, by the blue, by the song in your throat, by the sting in your nose. By your watermark. So I'm I'm thinking like that feels like it's part of an evolution toward a song like uh, Wolves, for instance, where it's not a narrative. You're throwing ideas out and it's like small little images. They're evocative and... I don't know. Is is this like a, a less evolved song in your in your view, or uh, hmm. I mean, it has this also. It has that kind of cool polyrhythm where you're playing a three on the guitar, and maybe is it a different three on the vocals? I don't know, but it has a cross rhythm to yeah. it, and it strikes me as more yeah. uh, a little more cerebral. Maybe I mean, it's rewarding in that sense. I mean, it's also just beautiful and emotional as well. It's a nice balance. Oh. Well, I remember writing that sort of cross rhythm you're talking about while watching TV at my mom's house. Watching the commercials and muting the show, right? Muting the show, (laughs) exactly. I went through a little period where I would write a lot like that. I kind of intentionally put on something, take the guitar, walk around, um, just kind of distract my mind. So it wasn't just focused on the... uh, guitar, I think, mm. taking your mind out of it, and I remember exactly where I was, and I don't remember it was on TV, it was just, I wasn't thinking, and I got that little motif going, and then, yeah, just kind of applying those words, which to me were about my girlfriend uh, who I was breaking up with at the time, and they weren't necessarily, like, about her, but they were kind of little fragments that, you know, she loved her bicycle, I got great mm. memories of her riding up on her bicycle, she always had a, it, was, it looked like a tattoo uh, next to her eye, but she drew it in every day, a little uh, star. That was her watermark. Mm. They're just all little things that were kind of connected to her without giving her up or giving up exactly that it was necessarily a person mm. or what that person meant to me. Because at that time, I think I wasn't even exactly sure, but I knew that their presence was enough of something in my life that I had to, I wanted to write about them. And then it's probably fair to say it stayed just kind of a, almost a little mind game for me trying to sing 
those words over that kind of almost Leonard Cohen mm-hmm. guitar pattern. Yeah. Having just moved to Montreal, I think I was listening to a lot of Leonard Cohen and had a little fascination with him that still continues, maybe a big fascination. And then for me, the sinker was getting that chorus. I remember that's when I was like, okay, especially the shape of your sadness can't hide behind your little shell. And the the nearer we came to salvation, the further we fell. And the trick of the devil is to make you think you're living in hell, which I think I thought I was kind of plagiarizing out of the usual suspects somehow. Yeah. <laughs> but a, a little spin, a little spin on and on the, that one. The devil is all over that first record. He's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really I, uh, thinking devil, and it's almost like every song he makes an appearance. Yeah, I won't say it was a dark time for me. It wasn't, but it was darker than other times, just because breaking up with the girl. I mean, that was, that was kind of the reason I moved to Montreal. Is I'd split up with this girl I've been with for seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slip had kind of decided to break up, mm-hmm. and I moved to a city where I knew only my brother and he was in love with a new relationship right right and i just kind of followed i was like well i'm not staying in boston and and i could speak some french so i got up here and i was suddenly like anonymous without a band without a girlfriend 30 years old i guess i decided i was going to experiment with you know depravity Uh maybe that's the wrong word depravity because that that's a pretty open-ended word i just kind of went down to the crossroads is what you're saying (laughs) yeah i wanted to see how dark i was willing to go thankfully not that dark i i still like parents and early friends and brother and music to thank but i i have like a a strong lifeline to Salvation. the rational and loving and embracing world full of light. I was never willing to go so dark. And, you know, I just want to be clear for anyone whose imaginations yeah. are running wild. I never, like, got hookers or, you know, <laughs> shot heroin or anything. I uh, I just sort of let go of whatever I thought was, I was like, I have no responsibilities. And right. I think that's why the devil kept popping up in those yeah. things. It was like, I got a glimpse of something here. Do I follow him? Do I see where, where it's going? Yeah. Do I keep a hand on the on the lifeline? So did that shift after making this record, or what was the shift like, and, and how does it relate to uh, the second record? Let me think. The second record, I can't remember when. So I came out in uh, 14, working on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, actually, Loving Enough, the flip I played that one. Oh, yeah? Too. I mean, I remember that tune was around for a while. Oh, interesting. I've always wondered uh, about this. The title's Love Ain't Enough, but the chorus is Love Is Enough. Just forget I ever said the true love ain't enough. Obviously, yeah. you're, you're at some point, you're saying you need more than just to be in love in order for things to work. And then you changed your mind. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I'll actually go on record here. Um, I had a girl I was seeing in Montreal for like a very short time. She's a hairdresser, and she also played guitar. And she gave me that lyric, Love Ain't Enough. She played a little guitar, and she'd sing that line. And I uh, got her blessing to take it and put it into a song, put it into that song. I also just didn't want to call the song Love Is Enough because... I thought that was just too two-dimensional. Uh-huh. 
maybe to kind of <laughs> oversimplify it. It reminds me of the Daniel Lenoir song called Joy, where he's just like, joy, 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 joy. I forget. I just remember hearing him play it once. Yeah, I it really felt like anything needed to be reduced to that simple. Maybe maybe when I'm older, I'll write the song Love Is Enough and then really believe it and know that. And actually, you know, I could probably write that song now. Now that I have a three-year-old, it actually makes more sense to me. Mm-hmm. But at the time, Love Ain't Enough, I was like, that's my challenge, is to work with this lyric, Love Ain't Enough. How do I work with this lyric? Because I find that who is the person who says that? What's their perspective? And what is that what does that mean? Is there some truth to that phrase that I could try and find? So this person's got a diamond in their head, and they, and they have a universal bluff, and they're trying to find yeah. a better glue. To hold this picture of the sun. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> hey. Oh. oh, it is 7:33. Yeah. We can take. We can take that. And that's where it ended, uh, at least for now. We will be following up and hopefully coming out with part two. We have yet to record, and knowing me, it might be a little while. But in the meantime, I do have episodes with Crow Greenspun, Stephen Strauss. I've got a bunch of guests that I'm hoping to have on soon. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you could share it with your friends. Uh, the more interest we get, the more time I can dedicate to it. Right now, it's it's just kind of a side project for me. I'm still touring a bunch and doing a lot of uh, different music productions here at Rep Studio. But I'd love to dedicate more time to the podcast. And uh, if this spreads around and gets some attention, I, I will do that. In the meantime, I'd love to hear who you'd like me to interview. I'd love feedback of any kind, so... Thanks for the feedback we've gotten so far. Best way to provide feedback and suggestions and otherwise to reach us is through Twitter, at Song at P-O-W-S-O-N-G. Hit us up there. You can also find me at Nate Silas on Twitter. And uh, thanks for listening, and keep those creative juices flowing. Mm-hmm.